Hosting for this podcast is generously provided by Transistor at Transistor.fm. You are listening to Storygram Podcast Network. Welcome to One Media, One Media, where we take two pieces of media and then we kind of talk about it and do deep dives, actually, because I guess Elaine did a bunch of research, too. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh-oh, the structure of the show is changing right now as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that much research, so oh, you're not going to okay. be super impressed. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, uh, this week we're going to talk about Maid Sama, which is actually called... I can't find it now, but it was, <laughs> it was written by Hiro Fujiwara. And I guess he or she has written some other works, um, but this is probably her most popular one. And she also has one-shots, too, that haven't come out. But this is the one that people love the most. And they call it a rom-com, which stands for a romantic comedy. The manga was released December 24th, 2005, and it went for six years. And it ended in September 27th of 2013. That's a pretty good run. It was 18 volumes. And then we're going to talk about the anime series, of course. There we go. So the anime series, which we're going to talk about, was released April 1st, 2010, and it went till September 23rd, 2010. It is 26 episodes plus one. And I don't know what that one is. And There's a bonus episode. There is a bonus episode. Not on Netflix. Not on Netflix, where we watched it. I could have swore I sent you a link about a second season. And it's not going to happen. There is an online petition to get it going because everybody wants it to continue. I'm sure there's this crazy love triangle that we could kind of talk about. Unfortunately, no. It's probably for the best. I don't know. Like, I would want a second season, but then I'm thinking (sighs) the tension was built so perfectly in the first season. I don't know how you would keep going. It couldn't keep going how it was. It had to have to change pretty dramatically. I don't know, but I do miss that world. I loved, and this is the second time I watched this. Yes, yes. And, you know, the second time I watched it, I was noticing kind of the beats, and it reminded me of Fruits Basket, the first season. Whenever they did hardcore action, they get really cartoony, almost comic-like. And I had to know, was there anybody who did this series also worked on Fruits Basket? And... The only one I found was Mamiko Ikeda, and she wrote the screenplay for Fruits Basket. That's the only one, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Unfortunately, nobody else did. It was directed by Hiroaki Sakuri. Yeah, and I guess there's also a CD that you could get, too, like a weird... Music or like like an audio? Audio CD. So we could talk about the plot or do you want to talk about the plot? I'll let you do it. Maid Sama focuses on Misaki, who is a high school student. And she's a very driven girl. And she's like the president of the school student council. 
But her school she goes to is originally an all-boys school. So there's not a lot of girls there yet. So she is the boy police. Like she is always coming down on the guys for running in the hallways or not being, you know, like if they're doing it, breaking any rules, she's laying yeah, down the law. Yeah, I, I noticed that she ha- kind of has a mistrust in the boys there. Almost a femme Nazi. Yeah, she fiercely protects the girl students and supports them and then can have an edge against the boys. So, And she's pretty aggressive and she knows martial arts. <laughs> she's not one to be messed with. And it's about her. And she lives with her mother and her younger sister. Their dad split on them, which we can kind of point to her mistrust with guys. And yes. so the mom has to work a lot. And so Masaki has a secret job. She works at a maid cafe. Maid cafe. So she's a maid by afternoon and evening. And then there's a, you know, she's got her two best friends. And then there's a boy who... Usui. Who she just can't stand in the beginning because he's like the most handsome boy at school kind of thing. And girls are always getting their hearts broken by him. Yeah. So she's very distrustful of him, but he finds out her secret. And so that's how they're kind of... Their connection. I don't know if you call it a friendship, but like, yeah, like their connection. Yeah. And he kind of stalks her pretty much. For he becomes obsessed with her. Tar- very obsessed yeah. with her, but he does it in an endearing way, I guess. It's kind of creepy, actually. It's a little creepy, but at the same time, like... He knows, and she goes by Misa yeah. at the yeah. maid cafe. And I don't know, is that a nickname for Misaki as well? Yeah, it's just short. I mean, if you look at it, it's M-I-S-A-K-I. Yeah, I for Misa so, for everything. Misa. I think it's cute. So I think he becomes intrigued with her because she just seemed like a hard ass. And then it turns out she had this whole different side to her and that she was doing this to support her family. So I think he really decided he liked her and then wanted to help her. So he's always very protective of her. Definitely. And the funny thing is, is Misa doesn't trust him through at least four or five of the episodes. And she thought as soon as Usui found out about it, he was just going to spread the rumor around. But instead, he ended up going to the MIG cafe even more. (laughs) Just staring at her with these puppy dog eyes and... He became her like regular customer. And then it's just like her realizing where his intentions really are. Like, is it to mess with her or blackmail her or is it to really protect and be her friend? Right, right. All in all, he just really wants to become her friend and break that hard shell that she has. Maybe that's why he's stalking her and following her around and just being nice is so he can become friends with her. I mean, the first four or five episodes, which I watched, I watched the first six episodes, they don't go into her best friends at all. It's just like once or twice, and it's mostly just her and Usui. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah, her friends don't. Yeah, like, I think they were in one episode for less than a minute. See, and that's what Misa's problem is, is she doesn't let people in. Like, she doesn't let people help her. And she's so tough, and she thinks she has to help everybody, and she never asks for help. And Usui sees that. And so he, like, muscles from her. Like, he has to, like, fight her to help her kind of thing. Right. um, To show her, like, no, there's people out here for you who want to support you. So that's kind of, like, her personality. It's, like, very controlling. And And it seems like he does actually give her good advice, too, throughout the series. She apologizes multiple times to him because he does rescue her from certain situations. He is truly looking out for her. He's not trying to screw her over in any way, except for to get pictures with her. Oh, yeah. He does want pictures with her. Can I talk about my favorite episode? (laughs) It's your show. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it'll spoil anything. But so she works at a maid cafe and they have like, do you remember this one where there's stalkers, like real stalkers assaulting Oh, that's great. That was episode three or four. Okay, so they're like, here's a taser with pepper spray. She's like, I don't need that. She knows Aikido. So she's just like ready to fight. So I think it's really funny that she's just, I'll protect you guys. But of course, she gets kind of mixed up in it and tricked and kind of captured. And so Usui wants to save the day, but she's already beating everybody up. So it's so awesome. (laughs) She gets mad and like busts out of her like... Like they tied her up, busts out of that, and it's like beats them up. Oh, God, that is so funny. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love this show. Yeah. I love it. And then I questioned myself because I was like, what the f*** is a maid cafe anyways? And how is that like... <laughs> How do people think of it? Because she's so embarrassed about working at one. But it comes up a lot as like, they have a school open house. And they're like, oh, let's do a maid cafe. Like, ah, it's so cute. So I was like, are they sexist? Are they like... So I started kind of down that path of just kind of like looking at what people thought of them. Okay. And it seems like... At first I thought, oh, is it kind of like a Hooters? (laughs) Like, it's like... You know, Not like in America, really. no. but it didn't seem at, as much like that. So I was like, well, and I, I think it's more cosplay. It's made it for, co- for the cosplay world, right? It is, but it is really geared towards kind of serving men. Yeah. Kind of the exact opposite what she portrays at the school, too. And also, I think we forgot to mention the reason why she works at the Maid Cafe. Not only to help pay the bills... But also because it's the only job that she could get that would work with her hours. Yeah, they're very, very flexible. She tried to do manual labor. Like she was trying to be like doing construction or something. And yeah, she couldn't do that and go to school. It's a last resort job. But I was just wondering. But then the manager there is always like, oh, we're here to create an atmosphere. We're here to create joy. And like, it's fun. And so... It was just kind of interesting. And I read one blog post that compared it to geisha culture in Japan. Okay. Because geishas, they said, were not prostitutes. They were trained in like music and dance and art and how to have an interesting conversation. So they were well-educated women to entertain men. So it was like, it's more about like having tea together and being able to hold an interesting conversation and entertain. So they were kind of paralleling the maid cafes of today with kind of like this geisha culture yeah. in that sense where it's not necessarily like such a sexual kind of thing, even though everyone's right. cute. And then I read there's different kinds. Like there's some where the maids are really nice, but there's other ones where the maids are like real mean at first. Like, it, <laughs> Oh really? That's yeah. So like they're real weird. cold. Like they're like, Ugh, why are you here? And then they warm up to you. <laughs> uh, so, and then there's ones where they wear like cat ears. Yeah, like yeah. There's, a cat there, there's also different, like, kind of video game themed Mig cafes, um, and they, they there's Mig cafe pop ups, or and it's just a certain theme. There's a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. It's kind of perplexing, but I think it's for her. It's very embarrassing that she works at something like that because she Especially, is kind yeah. of very butch, almost yes. a tomboy. <laughs> And for her to be kind of picking on these boys and beating them up. And then maybe eight hours later, she's at this cafe going, hi, master. (laughs) Yes. And dressed super cute. And she's really good at her job. Like she does everything really well. So it's like. She's good at her job as long as she doesn't have to put out too much emotion. Or to, she has to just be more herself. Because yeah, they will do yeah. different themes and it drives her crazy. Yeah, like the little sister the one. Oh that one is God. creepy. That, that is so- one that, they talk about that one, that that is something they do. And I'm like, ooh, like, what is that about? Yeah. That's the only one that was weird to me. That one is a weird one. And yeah. she couldn't get into the theme of it. But yeah, I don't get it either. <laughs> Maybe it's because, I, I don't know. I'm not going to explain. Or- the customers are so polite and in love with the maids yeah like even though the maids are like the ones serving them they're enjoying them but not like in a weird like dominating way like they're always like oh like they save points to get to play card games with them or save points to get a picture with them it's like they really really love them so i don't know it's like a weird my friend, when he went to Japan, he went to a maid cafe with his wife, and he said that was pretty awesome. They were like the nicest people he met in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, but <laughs> that's really unfortunate when you think about it because they're paid to be nice to you. Yeah, that's yeah, and that to me, I'm wondering like, is it more clear there that it's a game and it's kind of for fun, like it's cosplay, so it's kind of got a tongue in cheek thing, like kind of silly thing going on, versus like I was saying here we have Hooters, and I think guys really think that those girls like them, and it's like no, 
it's also yeah. cosplay. Like that's not what right, women really right. are like. But I think here we don't get that. I think here guys are like the girls are like that. Yeah, they you know. Right. Whereas there, I'm like, is it clear that this is like for fun and Sometimes, playful? But you know, some people who aren't right in the head, of course, will kind of get it wrong. But girls go more to made cafes now too, because at first they oh, okay. were really made to cater toward like anime guys. Because I think yeah. guys probably liked anime first more, and it was well, more it was catered more toward their taste. Boys and guys, yeah. unfortunately. And now they have all these rom coms for yes. girls so now and uh, I me. would be at a maid cafe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, we would go. <laughs> yeah, we would go to totally a maid cafe. Go. I'd uh, have to live my maid sama fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> so you watched the whole entire series oh within God, a day yeah. or two. Couple days. I well like That's... three or four days. Wow. Like two I got through half of it really fast. I was hiding a week. I was gonna let you know this show you can disappear into a fun rom-com land. <laughs> it really yeah. makes you feel better. I wasn't sleeping well, so I would watch Made Summer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. I think yeah, it's cute, but you know, I've been so busy, unfortunately. I've been watching other series, too. So I watched the first six, and I was like, this is really good. It's a lot of fun. I love, like I said, the artwork is kind of sketchy. But then when there's a lot of action, it gets kind of cartoony at the same time. It doesn't get too cheesy. Sometimes I feel like some of the rom-coms that we watch or a Slice of Life series, there's a lot of cheese in it. I guess, okay, it does get cheesy at some points. <laughs> But it's not as hardcore as the other ones we watched so far. And I think this was another series that the second series I made, well, maybe the third series I made you watch. I was like, oh, Made Some is really good. You have to watch it. Ah! Yeah. It's, it, and it still held up. That's what I was thinking. Like, I watched it, I liked it before. And then I watched it again. And I was like, oh, I still love this. Yeah. Because you are now almost a experienced uh, anime watcher. <laughs> Yeah, and just very like of sliver small genre, <laughs> mostly of like the rom com. <laughs> and I think it's well written, and they kind of make fun of. At one point, yeah. Usui says something like, "It's almost as if we're in a romantic comedy." Like he kind of makes fun of it. So there is that. That and, is cool. Um, everyone's light. Like it's nice too. Like I said, when you're, I don't know, when I'm feeling bummed out, sometimes you need to be in the fantasy of a world where yeah. people do the right thing and they're kind to each other. <laughs> so right, right. You need, that, you need that sometimes. That. Yes. I also like that it's not pushing what you're going to be when you grow up or how you need to be doing the right thing throughout your life or whatever. It just kind of does it. Like the first season just focuses on maybe one year or something, right? Yeah. And Misa isn't always the hero. Right. Right. Sometimes Usui has to come in and save her. And she, has to apo- and she has to apologize for her actions. All the time. She's kind of one of those people that everything's a nail, so she just tries to hammer it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I like dude. that analogy. That's good. Right? That's good. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the things that it has. It's a rom-com. So sooner or later, there might be some cheesy romance in there. It has a little action. And it's very funny, and I love the comedy in it. It has crazy cosplay and cross-dressing. Yes, my favorite cross-dressing characters. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. And it, it also doesn't have it so the main character is always the superhero. And I think that's important. You would recommend this to anybody and everybody, I could tell. Yes, I would almost would recommend this to anybody and everybody because I know some people will just kind of watch it and they might think it's kind of too cheesy for them. But just give it a chance and I think it's actually really good and it's kind of fun. It's a lot of fun, not just kind of fun. Yes. So, yes. So check it out. I think at the end of the year, we are going to have to talk about our favorites of favorites and the ones that surprise us the most, our least favorites, blah, 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 blah. This one will probably definitely be up there. All right. So we'll be back in just a second. Storygram Network. Hello, welcome to One Media, One Media. I'm your host, Takeshi, and with me I have Santos, and we take two pieces of media, and we take a deep dive on them. 
kind of. We just talk about it. Kind of. Hi, my name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. So it's not about food, and it's not about weight. What is it about? It's the intersection of possibility, where what-ifs and why-nots collide. Some on the cutting edge, others on the cutting room floor. It's a place I like to call The Bleed. We sit for cares away, and you can do the same, cause you're in a safe place when you're whining with nurses. Hey, podcast fans, I'm Jeff Davis. Through the safety of your earbuds, Bluetooth speaker, or car stereo, join me as I venture out on the wine road. Aiden offers up practical and helpful tips to help you live a more joyful life. The art of being yay isn't just something he developed on a whim on a lonely Wednesday. Storygram Network. Keyboard segue. (laughs) And we are back. And today we are going to talk about... Nirvana Unplugged. I always wanted to review a Nirvana album, but I didn't know which one we should do. And I love all their albums, but this one's pretty weird and it's very well chronicalized because it's owned by MTV. And I hate the fact that they own this moment, but I'll let them have it because there's so many documentaries on it. It was recorded in November 18th of 1993, and the album was released November 4th, 1994. Let's give a little background here. MTV Unplugged began airing in 1989, and most of the artists would like play their big rocking songs, but it'd be in acoustic guitars. It was kind of a kitschy thing until... Who is the first person? The very first one was Squeeze and Sid Straw and Elliot Easton. I have no clue. It also featured Aerosmith, Elton John, Poison, Joe Satriani, Steve Ray Vaughn. That was just the first season. Pearl Jam was one that people remember. There was a unplugged hip-hop version. So there was LL Cool J, MC Light, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest... Mariah Carey did one. She kind of cheated too, though. Eric Clapton did one. How do you cheat? Like, I guess you know she's not playing guitar or anything. <laughs> well, I don't think a lot of the instruments. She, maybe they they were unplugged. I don't know. Queensrÿche, yeah. Annie Lennox. I know Duran Duran when they did it. It wasn't all acoustic, for a fact. I know even The Cure might have one, and that one's kind of funny. I think it was only in Europe, so it wasn't as big. The reason why Nirvana got roped into doing it was because it's MTV. And when they ask you to do something, you pretty much have to do it. Back Especially then, at that point they had in that the much 90s, pull early back, 90s. Yeah. yeah, you're going to do it. That's a big deal. I don't think they truly wanted to do it, but they had to. And I heard, well, not I heard, I read the rehearsals were Kurt Cobain and the producers of Unplugged just arguing the whole entire time. Their rehearsal stage was in New Jersey, and they were just arguing. So they didn't even get to rehearse, really. About, like, song choice? or Song choice, the guests that they were going to bring, because they wanted, like, Eddie Vedder and Tori Amos. And he brought on the Meat Puppets because they were touring together. So obviously, yeah, he's going to have him come on because he knows him well. And and I think during that time, Kurt Cobain and Pearl Jam weren't getting along either. Kurt Cobain would always throw sticks at them through media. Really? Oh, yeah. It was pretty funny back then. It, <laughs> he, he knew they were cheesy as <laughs> And also, during the production, he was going through withdrawal and they were trying to get him drugs. And... He wanted the stage to kind of look like a funeral. 
and he always suggested to bring on more stargazer lilies and he also wanted that chandelier to be up on top and a whole bunch of black candles and when there wasn't enough he would say no i want more they're like kind of like a funeral he's like yep spot on and the other crazy thing about this album is this is the last mtv performance he did with him he died about five months later this is his last recording yeah well They played in Europe a little bit, but I think this is the last true recording and really good recording. The actual Unplugged TV show, it was released a little bit after the performance, and it did include three songs. I think it was something in the way. I can't find it right now. I don't know why. They cut three of the songs? They cut three of the songs out, and probably a Meat Puppet song and something else. Oh, hold on well, here. that's what I looked up was that there's three Meat Puppet songs. There is. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah, but still. I think the whole entire performance was great. Also, the producer was kind of rolling their eyes because they were still using amps in one of the songs. It was obvious that there was a little bit of distortion going through it. Okay, so it was something in the way that they didn't use in Oh Me. Okay, so they it was two songs. MTV wanted them to come out to do an encore, and they refused. (laughs) (laughs) They played a lot of songs. I thought it was great. 14 songs, right? Yeah, so eight originals and six covers. Which, isn't that a lot of covers? It is, but I mean... I think it's cool. I just mean, like, I don't think that's typical. Exactly. Well, the thing was, is they didn't want to be playing, like, Smells Like Teen Spirit and... Heart Shaped Box and all those other rocking songs. They wanted to create a cool atmosphere. And they did make stuff that would work for acoustic. That makes sense. Exactly. And everybody was expecting, even MTV wanted them to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. And they're like, no. We don't want to ruin a song. Yeah. So that's what a lot of the arguments were going through during that rehearsal. Yeah, some stuff can be done stripped down and other stuff, that's the whole point of the song is all the other instruments and noise and how you've produced it. Right, right. And so the cool thing about this, I mean, of course, I mean, they had Pat Smear with him. Pat Smear is also known for playing guitar for the Germs. But during In Utero, they got him on as a touring guitarist to help out with the guitar duties. And so he was there, and also they had a celloist, which they always brought it along a celloist throughout their In Utero tour, too. Did Rasputina play with them? Uh, Mel? No. It was someone else. They have two. But they uh, toured together, right? They did tour together, definitely. So I think that's most of the information that I need to give out. Like I said, I really don't like the documentaries about the Nirvana Unplugged thing. But at the same time, yes, it's a pretty amazing thing. And they did edit it down because there was a lot of chatter actually in between each song. And they cut all that out to make it this nice little folk album. And it did win, I think, a Grammy too for Best Folk Album. And they released it and it outsold in utero too. Such a reach. Yeah, so I feel like this is a good first album. Well, for this show, I'd always tell people if they're going to start off with Nirvana, they might want to start with, of course, Nevermind. But I think Nevermind is so much in our bloodstream that we don't even know at all that it's in us. Because to me, Nirvana is Gen X's best gift to the music industry, to the world. And unfortunately, he's not with us. The guitar, I want to talk about Kurt Cobain's guitar because, oh God, it made my skin crawl when I first watched the video. So Francis Bean inherited his collection of instruments and she got married to this one guy. I can't remember his name right now. He was a up and coming musician or whatever. And she gave it to him as a wedding gift. And lo and behold, they divorced maybe two years later and he took the guitar with him and she tried to get the guitar back and he put it up for auction it was making my skin crawl because I thought it was just going to go to some 
private collector and, and no one was ever going to see it again, which we no one did see it for however long. Fortunately, the CEO of Rode Microphones, Peter Friedman, ended up buying it and he's going to well, because of COVID, he can't do this yet, but he's going to go on tour with the guitar whenever there's a road kind of fest thing going on for his, their microphones. The guitar is going to be there and you would have to pay a little bit to get in, but all the proceeds are going to go towards music instruments oh, for schools like, and stuff. Yeah, like for, supporting the music programs. Exactly. So That's pretty cool. Yeah, I so. feel bad for Francis Bean. It's like you give someone you think you're going to be with forever this gift, so you think it's going to be in your family still, and then you divorce and they take it, and I get it, it's theirs, but then they just go turn around and sell it. Like that seems cruel. Like it's, it yeah. seems messed up. And it sold for quite a bit. It sold for over $6 million. Oh, what a creep. And it's actually a pretty rare guitar, too. It's a 1959 Martin D 18E. And I can't remember how rare it is, but I think it's like number eight of maybe 30. And that's what he used on this album. Yeah, that's what he used on this album. We played. Yeah. Can I ask a side question? Yes. <laughs> you said Pat Smear was in this lineup. Where did Dave Grohl come from? <laughs> what? He's a drummer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the drummer. But what LA wasn't he in the LA punk scene too? No, he wasn't in Where the LA punk from? scene. If I remember right, he came from more of the New York East Coast punk scene. That's also where Pat oh. Smear came from. If I remember right. I don't know why I had him placed in LA. Sorry. No. Just, no. I didn't know if they knew each other that way. Yeah, yeah. Somehow they hooked up because Nirvana was looking for a new drummer. And I guess they met three friends. He saw them play live and he met Kurt Cobain and Chris. Oh, well, here's another thing. Let's not forget this. Nirvana was a feminist band. Let's not forget about this in any way, shape, or form. And they even at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... They made sure that there was women singing every one of their songs at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of funny, too, because I can't remember her name. She played that song I love, Rock and Roll. Uh, Joan Jett. They had Joan Jett do Smells Like Teen Spirit. Wow. Sometimes her New York accent would push through. (laughs) And it kind of sounded weird at points. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's just cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And it was kind of cool. So they had someone who was a legend. And then they brought out Kim from Sonic Youth. And then they brought out this up-and-coming singer. I can't remember her name for the life of me. I kind of feel like they should have had probably Courtney Love do a song too. But there has been they finally are getting along now. But you know, she held all their music for so long, right? She, well, she is a shareholder within the music. She didn't hold it back or anything. There's three people in the band, and so she has partial rights to it until I think Francis Bean became 18 or something. I can't remember exactly. I mean, I don't really want to get into his death or anything because we're going to probably watch a documentary and we can totally just fling poo at Courtney Love then. <laughs> She's very ambitious. Yes, yes. (laughs) So you did some research? Well, I just really liked this album. And so I did go listen to it a bunch of times. And then I would start listening to like the original version of the song and then see how it sounded. And I would have to say like, just like my one like negative comment would be, I didn't like Penny Royalty as acoustic. Really? I don't think that, I don't think it made it. I don't think it, I think I liked it better. In the original. You know what? In the documentaries, they said that was the watershed moment of that performance. Maybe like had when to be he there. played that like alone. It, just, it was it like does. that's when everything just kind of got released. I wow. swear to God. Yeah. But it's yeah. very powerful, but I just I kinda liked it how it sounded better yeah. as a song. Right, right. Because totally. his voice doesn't go like he doesn't have it for it's it's very emotional in this, but it to me it's not it it was like 
Not right. my favorite. Yeah. I have to say one of my favorite ones on here is The Man Who Sold the World, though. Okay, I think you want me to play that? they covered that really well. I got some information about a man who sold the world. <laughs> yes. So it was written by David Bowie. It wasn't really a hit. It was pretty much Nirvana's song that kind of blew it up. I don't know if you ever heard that version of it. It's pretty interesting. Um, David Bowie's? Yeah, David Bowie's version. It's like way more produced. And yeah. it has like backup vocals and... His voice is all phased and chorusy. We don't have to play that version. Yeah, go listen to it. I found it on Spotify. But and- <laughs> okay, so that was written in 1970, or it was written and recorded in 1970-71. But there is a Lulu version of it, and that's the one I posted on my Facebook. And that one's really interesting because she played two songs she played this song and she also played and performed watch that man which is on aladdin sane so i want to play the lulu version and it was produced by david bowie and he was actually there for the final mix and stuff so he produced a cover of his own song yeah two covers with this two covers she's like a pop singer yeah she is Oh, yeah. And he played the saxophone and did the backing vocals. (laughs) That's funny. Total blessing. Yes. All right. I think it's dope as f- so. Fine. I, yeah. I think Kurt Cobain and Nirvana owned this song on this one. Oh, like, God, I think they, they did. brought oh. like, a level of emotion to it. I was just like, oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah, I think this version is the best version. And- David Bowie liked their version? Oh, yeah, of course they did. And blew it up for him. Yeah, it's true. Then everyone yeah. went back and listened to that other album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but- I just thought it was was just so beautiful, and I thought it was a cool way. The other cool thing about this album, I forgot to mention, this was all one take. Oh, that's probably why it's so good, because the energy's there. They they mentioned that other performances, if they messed up, they'd do it over again, or whatever. They just barreled through it, pretty much. You get some of that talking in this on this yes, album there's a lot more like, talking actually in between each song too but you okay, do get some of it he'll say he's like oh this is what i'm gonna mess up or i think yeah. i'm gonna oh this is just me alone right i guess i'll try it in a different key or something yeah so which is fun to hear a little bit of that right i think there was at least 30 seconds more talk in between each song where they cut it up to make it more on an album and a performance on mtv yeah, so it's all done in one take. So you can actually hear sometimes there's like this weird feedback in the background. One thing I do like about the album, there's like this dynamics in it where some parts are really quiet and then it gets louder and louder and louder. I really appreciate that too. And the fact that they brought out the meat puppets and nobody knew who were the meat puppets were, that's just a big middle finger too. <laughs> TV. Well, I thought that was cool. Yeah. 
because I was like, what are these songs? What are the lyrics? I started looking at the lyrics and stuff. And I was like, oh, it's a Meat Puppet song. Oh, it's me. I was like, oh. And then it said it was kind of unusual for, I think, probably unplugged for someone to have covered so many songs yeah. of other people. And then they said that they used the Meat Puppets as their backup for the Meat Puppet songs. And I was like, yeah, oh, they're two friends. Of them came like, out. They yeah, they were touring together. Like they're friends, which is cool. Like, I don't know. It's just kind of like a neat thing to do. Like, if you have friends and you're like, you like their music. And it's like, well, I'm going to introduce more right. people to Yeah. So one of these days, we'll have to review a Meat Puppets album, I think. Talking about Meat Puppets, I like Lake of Fire. No, not that one. Hold on here. I like Plateau. No. Yeah. Oh, I liked Plateau. <laughs> I liked Plateau too, but I think it was Oh Me. There we go. If I had to lose a mind, if I had to touch feelings. My soul, the way I do. I don't have to think, all I have to do with the results are always perfect. But that's all the news. Would you like to hear my voice? I don't know, it's mellow. I, I like it. But I think yeah. the Meep Puppet songs are pretty good. On there, and it does fit with the whole entire atmosphere of what they're going for. So I think they were needed. MTV. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, right. Because I think it helped make sense of the album. Right. Because if they just tried to convert all of their songs into acoustic songs, it might not have worked and it would sound clunky or kind of. I don't know. Then it just yeah. be like versions of the songs you don't like. Like you're like, oh, there's that album. <laughs> all their music I don't like. To me, sometimes the. I think the covers that they did are a little bit better than their Nirvana songs that they performed, even though there was, you know, six and eight. I'm trying to think which, which do you have a Nirvana song you really like? Uh, a Nirvana song I really liked? Yeah, on this one. I mean, I, I like them all, but uh, let's I'm see. I'm trying to pick one, though. I, can't. <laughs> I think Out on a Plane is really good. <gasps> yes. All right, here we go. Start this off without any words. Got so high, scratching up there. Love myself better than you. Know it's wrong. So what should I do? The finest day that I've ever had was when I learned to crawl from out. Love myself better than you. I always just end up wanting to hear the rest of the song. <laughs> I forget. I have to stop it. Right. We have to. And then what about, I think I researched Come As You Are a little bit. Okay. What about it? Um, I think it's the one where they pulled from the Killing Jokes song, 80s. Okay. Like that's the riff. And so I guess originally, we'll have to listen to this to make sure I'm right if this, this is, if this is a song. So originally, like, Kirk didn't really want to release it because it's so obvious where the riff came from. And they released it anyways, and Killing Joke totally clocked them for using their riff. Okay, so what's new with the Killing Joke song? Okay, here we go. Let's hear 80s. Oh, 
Well, interesting. His integrity is good. Like yeah. he didn't want to release it. Like he's like, it's so obvious where we got this from. You know, like so I thought that that's was kind of funny it, because the label wanted to release that song as their very first single. They didn't believe in Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. And then they went with Smells Like Teen Spirit for some strange reason, and that's what really blew up Nirvana. The other cover I love that they did was Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam, which is a Vaseline's cover, but it's actually a Bible song or whatever. And Chris Novoselic brings out an accordion, and he plays the accordion for the song. I think they even played it at the Hall of Fame because he brings out the accordion, and then Pat Smear brings out the guitar that he used for Unplugged. And they play the song together, so I'll just play a small part of it. I just end up wanting to keep on playing it. I know, it. it's so good. <laughs> I really, really like this album. Yeah. I'll have to say my last, like like you said, I don't want to sound like I don't like Nirvana songs. I liked all of them. <laughs> so okay. if we can't play all of them. But so the covers were really interesting to me, but I do really, I like the last song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Oh, yeah. Have you heard the Lead Belly version of it? Yes. Oh. And I was like, ah. Oh. Okay. So supposedly that was a watershed moment to the MTV producers because there's that one part where he does that really long note and he's like kind of screaming and his voice is kind of given out and then he gives us one last breath and then he sings the rest of the song. Yeah, and it was just like kind of his soul going out or whatever the f*** uh, they said. And I was like, f*** you guys. Well, it's really dramatic. But anyway, it is beautiful. Yes, it is. And also, again, I like that he's... When you're on a platform like that and he's amplifying other musicians like yes. i think lead belly probably created a lot of musicians or influenced a lot of musicians yeah, in american yeah. music so totally. i don't know it always makes me happy when people kind of i looked up lead belly after i listened to this album a couple times within the last couple months and his music's pretty good i dig it i mean also i looked up the vaselines the vaselines are an amazing band so you guys should go out there and listen to the Vaselines, the Meat Puppets, and Lead Belly, because you're going to learn something. Okay, so here we go. Uh, let's do Where Did You Sleep Last Night? I was going to say that too. kind of feel like we should get to that one part of the song the watershed part that <laughs> yeah skip forward all right all right all right 
So, yeah, it does get intense. And let me just talk about Kurt Cobain's voice because people are in the singing style. And some people think that he's an overrated singer and he wasn't really that good of a singer. But it was his tone, and that's what's really important. I mean, have you ever heard anybody try to cover a Nirvana song? You can't. Oh, I never thought about that. Oh, it's a total show. <laughs> it uh, there is actually an album is just Nirvana cover. You know, they cover Nirvana and da 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 da. No one can do it. Nope. It just yeah. I, it, like to me, some oh, people can't cover. Think, like some who people could possibly can't possibly yeah. do it. Some people can't cover, um, to me, Jimi Hendrix songs because, to me, it's an insult to Jimi Hendrix. Uh, leave it be. <laughs> yeah, just leave it be. You just don't cover Jimi Hendrix songs. And I, I believe Nirvana, unless you got the backing band of Nirvana with you, you can't cover a Nirvana song. His, yeah, I was just thinking... That like the covers are so intriguing to me. I was just thinking this is like with the lead belly one because his range is is bigger when you hear him sing other music. You realize, wow, his voice lends it. He's got such a storyteller voice, yeah. and the emotion in his voice brings something yeah, new to these songs. A lot of people don't talk about is I think it was his aunt who taught him how to play guitar, and I think taught him how to sing. She also I think taught him how to do that yodeling kind of thing that he does throughout his his song sometimes that you can't really tell, but I have watched some voice teachers on YouTube watch him perform certain songs. They're like, yeah, that's the style of yodeling that he's doing. Yeah. And, so, and you don't really know about that. Okay, so let's go to this why should moment. Hold on here. So that was the watershed moment that MTV was talking about. His screaming, the way he screams, that has like this crazy rasp to it. It reminds me of a toddler screaming. (laughs) uh, But (laughs) more pretty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But like when a toddler screams to me, it it reminds me of Kurt Cobain kind of doing that because it has like all this emotion to it and they're crying and they're screaming for a certain reason. And they want this attention, and that's what his that kind of like that gravelly. Let's see any adult try to do that without hurting themselves. That's true. It's, this made me think like he was so done with music in his life. Oh, um, yeah. At this point, right? And it just made me sad because I'm like, oh, I wish he could have taken a break just and thought about how else he could have different music he could have made yeah he wanted to take a break he actually okay we'll get into this lightly but he didn't want to go on the big european tour that they did right after this he wanted to take a break but because in utero was released a little bit beforehand they had to go do it because they were like losing millions if he didn't do it right then and there and that's when he had his relapse. See, so I just think I wish they could have protected him and let him 
Yeah. You know, because I just think, like, just imagine, like, the music he could have made if he crossed paths with, like, Amy Winehouse <laughs> or, like, like when things went more old school or I think if Nick Cave going into, like, the murder ballads and there's yeah. all these different avenues that could have happened for him outside of I'm just- kind of curious what would have happened with him in general. Yeah. I think he probably would have bowed out of music for a long time after this because he was at his peak and I think he would have just been happy just doing art. His art's amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his art. He has these crazy paintings that are just yeah, beautiful. Yeah, he needed a break. He needed a break yeah. from everything. So uh, maybe the, that's why the covers draw me in because it gives you the idea of like where else he could have been going. So it kind of gives you that sense. You're very right about that. I wish he would have not committed suicide. It, it's such a pity that he did just go the way he did and god the suicide note is so sad it is really sad I oh did my read god that you, look, you read it so i did a little research i had to i was listening yeah. to this so much and his music actually makes you quite sad if you listen to it a lot so yeah. it can be comforting when you are feeling down and that's like i had a down week so i was like needed so i felt into it but yeah. then i was like oh this is getting me down too much because i started reading about him <laughs> you're just sad that yeah. then you're grieving him all of a sudden <laughs> yeah and definitely this album in general you do feel kind of um what's the word melancholy oh, I melancholy yeah there's a sweetness there's a sadness there's like it's the sweetness like- but you feel like you missed out on something in a sense that there was a lot more potential in him and I, like you were saying in general you're right about that because his emotion is so raw in this album too it's you feel like you know him like you're like i get you yeah <laughs> he's really good at building that emotional connection so i think that's what's tough yeah and i guess because they didn't have these really loud guitars it does sound like he's a little bit more vulnerable mm-hmm. oh yeah that's a good point yeah i wonder how i just feel like we're so f- Like, if he was now, I just feel like we still don't handle substance abuse or mental illness well enough to save people. Like, we just push people to these limits um, without really honoring, like, who they are and, like, what they need. Yeah, and I think what got him in trouble, once again, in Europe, when he fell into that coma or whatever, or overdose, was a sleeping pill. Stop giving our rock stars and actors sleeping pills that happened to... Okay, so let's, let's, let's do the count here. It happened to Bruce Lee. It happened to Kurt Cobain. It happened to Jimi Hendrix. And I think Keith Moon. Yeah, Keith Moon. And there's probably another one. Oh, sleeping pills? Sleeping pills is what got them. Keith Moon ate like 20 of them or something like that. So, I mean, of course, he's a nutcase. <sighs> but, yeah, that's what got Jimi Hendrix, too. So, no more sleeping pills, rock stars. Please. Right, and they're all burned out. Yeah, they were all kind of at the end of their wick, unfortunately. Well, I think of that with that with the chef too, Bourdain. Oh yeah. Also. Mm-hmm. Poor Anthony Bourdain. Right. People get pushed and they're push, push, push. And like we don't like I said, we don't respect mental illness or substance abuse like we should. We think, oh, that person killed themselves. They're not in their right minds. They're not right. they're chemically imbalanced, their bodies are out of balance. They're not sleeping. When you don't sleep, you go insane. So it's like you're pushing, and then you're pushing musicians late at night on these rough tours, and you wonder why they have breakdowns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kurt Cobain in general, there was millions of dollars that he couldn't let people down. There was all this pressure, and he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to go to Europe. He didn't want to do this Lollapalooza See, that's like Amy Winehouse, too. It was like this push, push, push on these very sensitive creatures. It's sad. And I bet you Kurt Cobain would have been happy just to play at some coffee shop or whatever. And just kind of nobody really knows him. Like Melora does. Like she plays in coffee shops in upstate New York, wherever she lives. Yeah. Just like open mic nights. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. It's sad how it just all ended. And one of these days we'll cover his death more. But right now, it's about this album. And yeah, I recommend it for everybody or anybody. But at the same time, you will feel a little sad listening to it. I recommend it. I think their music is classic music. Like you should know it. 
Yeah, it's in our veins, like I said before. Like it's in our bloodstream. We know pretty much all of Nirvana's catalog because they only had three albums in this one. Yeah, so, and they're constantly on the radio. Or- it, it still kind of is, isn't it? So yeah, I think that the Nirvana camp with Courtney Love too. They've really honored the music. They didn't try to sell it to some commercials or anything like that because they knew that Kurt Cobain would not want that in any way, shape, or form. He was totally anti that stuff. So you could find me on any social media under Glitch Unicorn. I do stream once a week. Check it out. Yes. And you can find me on Instagram as Sister Santos.